everyone, and welcome to Bigfoot Backpacker, uh, where we talk about Bigfoot backpacking, of course, and all things outdoors. And be sure and check us out on the website at bigfootbackpacker.net. If you maybe had a Bigfoot sighting or just want to talk about some of your outdoor pursuits, certainly click on the contact page and reach out, and uh, I'll reach back out, and we'll, we'll have a little talk. But today is a special day. They all are, but this one's extra special for me because... For the longest time, I've been wanting to have an expert that knows about wild edibles. And I've talked to some people about it, and they said, well, we, let's find someone that can do that. And so it's pretty exciting today that we can have Adam from LearnYourLand.com, who is an expert in these things. And uh, we have him here on the phone today. And I'll give a quick little introduction, and then I'll let Adam kind of go through and tell us about who he is and what he likes to do. And then, yeah, we've got some good questions for him, too, so, but we'll go from there. So, yeah, here's Adam. He's, like I said, the founder of LearnYourLand.com. Adam is a nature enthusiast. He's a researcher, a forager currently residing in western Pennsylvania. He leads various classes and workshops related to plant and mushroom identification, wild food harvesting, nutritional and medicinal components of wild foods, the benefits of nature connection, and more. His YouTube channel features over 150 instructional nature videos, and his Instagram and Facebook pages document his latest botanical and mycological discoveries. So that's a quick little intro. Adam, are you out there? I'm out here. Great to be here on your podcast, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time out today. So yeah, I've had a chance to look at your website, and you've got a beautiful website, and there's lots to see, and and I'm, I was able to look through some of your YouTube videos. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started, how long you've been doing this, and uh, tell us about your passions. Well, my passions are varied. And uh, as far as how I got into what I'm doing right now, I think I exhausted all the other passions. <laughs> and found out that they weren't quite working or they just led me into another passion. So I tried dishwashing, and that was fun, but wasn't what I was born to do. I did the music thing for a while. I got real heavily into nutrition. And I'm still heavily involved in nutrition. But as far as, you know, what I put out there in the world and what the world pays me to do currently, it's mostly teaching people about wild plants, trees, mushrooms. And I'm slowly getting into other things as well. So I teach people how to identify things. And I'm not quite sure how exactly I got into it. And I'm not lying when I say this or trying to be like real cheeky or anything, but I think it got into me rather than me getting into it. Like it just happened and uh, I can't really put all the pieces together, but it led me to what I'm doing today and I wouldn't have it any other way. I absolutely love doing it. I would do it even if I didn't get paid to do this kind of stuff, but fortunately I don't know how it happened. People just started paying me to do such a thing as teach them about what's wild, what things are, what you can eat. And I don't even necessarily think that's a good sign. Like, I think that's the sign of the end of times, you know? <laughs> right. pay you to teach them what is outside, because this is a skill that everybody used to know. And I admit, I don't know all this stuff. I only know a small fraction of it. But I'm slowly learning this stuff. And I, I pay people, you know, to teach me this stuff as well. Um, but I think it's a fundamental skill that every human being, no matter your background, no matter who you vote for, no matter what channels you watch on TV, any of that stuff, this is a fundamental skill that every human being ought to know. It's in our biology. You know, we've had it in us for such a long time. And it's the exception to not know these skills. And so I'm grateful that this is my job. I'm grateful to be sharing it with the people who want to hear from me. I'm not going to say the world because 
a very, very, very small fraction of people actually listen to what I have to say, um, but I'm grateful for them. Well, you're exactly right. I was just thinking about that when you were kind of going through and talking. Uh, yeah, at one point in our lives, you know, back with our ancestors, they had to know how to, you know, forage for wild edibles. And, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of mistakes that were made, but at the same time, people were learning. So, yeah, it's crucial, obviously. Everybody has to eat pretty much every day and, you know, and look for water and know how to take care of water as well. So, yeah, when it so when it comes to the wild edibles, gosh, there's so many, just a little bit what I know about, but I'm particularly always interested in the mushrooms. Now, a lot of people don't like mushrooms, and I get it, but I love morel mushrooms. And I've tried, I, I came across Morel mushrooms, actually I'm from, in, from Montana, in a restaurant once. And I said, well, what are these like? And they brought out a little dish and they were served up and oh my lord, I couldn't believe how, how scrumptious they were. So I started looking into it a little bit and then I, I got to the pages where they said, well gosh, there's, you know, the false morels. You better watch out for these. And I got a little bit scared about it. So yeah, are morel mushrooms probably the hottest topic in your world when it comes to mushrooms? <laughs> I get the most views on the Morel videos on YouTube. I'll just say that much. <laughs> so I strategically put them out there if I'm seeing that my channel is kind of sagging a bit, you know? Like, it'll bring it up. It'll put some life into it. I like Morels. I really do. I wouldn't necessarily say they're my favorite mushroom. Uh, I don't know if I really have a favorite mushroom. I know a lot of people are way more interested in it than I am. Uh, but I, I love finding them. I love looking for them. I don't really go too far out of my way these days just because there's so much else out there in the spring season, and I just get sidetracked a lot. But I remember years ago when I first got into mushroom hunting, morels were one of the first mushrooms that I learned, and I remember finding my first one. I remember going off on my own and finding even more and taking people out and showing them their first morels. And so it's really exciting. And, yeah, I agree with you. It's an incredibly delicious mushroom, and there are lots of others that are incredibly delicious as well. So... For some people, the morel season is the only time they look for mushrooms, and that's perfectly fine. You know, we all have priorities. For other people, that's just the beginning, and then it continues with other mushrooms that appear in June, July, August, September, all the way through the rest of the year. And I'm in western Pennsylvania, so our morel season is typically late March through right now, pretty much like mid-May to the end of May. Um, and so there's just plenty more out there that'll start appearing so long as you get rain. So it's been kind of dry here. So we're hoping for some rain so that the rest of the season will continue. Yeah, we all need water. And, you know, there's seems like there's there's a big shortage of it around the world. And, you know, we got to be stewards of the land. And I know that's a whole nother topic. But but uh, yeah, it's it's real important, obviously. Yash, I remember. Uh, yeah. Deciding, all right, well, I'm going to go hunt for morels in Montana. And I lived right next to the uh, Yellowstone River. And I said to myself, well, if I'm going to try and find these, I want to find a patch that only I know about. So I, I started floating the river. And, of course, I was fly fishing some at the time, too. But I did. It took me probably three years. But I think I, I came across a little morel patch on this island. And I w it was just like finding gold to me. But boy, I was sure nervous about whether or not it was a, you know, something that might harm me or not. But so I picked a few of them, just like four or five. They were in this little bunch. And I took them into the restaurant where I had found them because I had gotten to know the owner. He said, yeah, these, these are morels. He, he knew his mushrooms. And so I was pretty excited and I was, I coveted that spot. And then finally, after a couple of years, the river changed and the whole island got swallowed up. But I remember being so excited just finding those. It was, like I said, like a treasure hunt. It was a blast. So. 
Yeah, I, I love the burrells. So what other kind of mushrooms that uh, are you uh, fond of that you like to teach people about? Well, the next ones that will start appearing would be probably chicken of the woods is like the next big one that a lot of people are really interested in. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with chicken of the woods. It's this bright orange, yellowish mushroom that to some degree kind of resembles chicken in texture. Uh, some people say taste as well. And maybe you can get it to taste like chicken, but I think it's mostly the texture. And I like to get it when it's young. It's kind of interesting to see a lot of people find like a past prime chicken of the woods. They're so excited, and I understand it's probably the first time finding it. Because once you cut that thing in half, there are so many maggots in there. It's unbelievable how buggy this mushroom can get. But when it's young and it's watery and it's fresh, it's so delicious. And it cuts so well with a knife and it cooks up really quickly. And it's so easy to spot. So people call it the 80-mile-per-hour fungus because of its bright orange color. You could be driving on the highway at 80 miles per hour and still find this mushroom. But where I live in Pennsylvania, a lot of people think this is a like a late-summer autumn mushroom, and it is. But it starts to appear in May. And so for the past eight, nine years, every May, this mushroom appears reliably. And I think because people don't know it's a spring mushroom, they're not looking for it. And so I'm the one that gets to it first. But it's another easy-to-identify edible mushroom. It's a polypore mushroom, which means there are pores on the underside. That's where the fertile surface is, rather than gills, rather than spines or teeth. And so if you find gills on the underside of an orange mushroom, it's not chicken of the woods. It's definitely a different mushroom, and it could be a toxic fungus. Uh, But if you go through a bunch of key identifying characteristics, you can find these in books, or you can find them online, or watch videos that I have out there on Chicken of the Woods, you won't mistake it for anything else. So that's the next big one to appear. And then chanterelle season is always a good time of year, depending on the rain, though. And so chanterelles, those are other orange mushrooms, and they don't technically have gills in the way that other mushrooms have, like these really distinct plate-like gills. But if you look at the underside of a chanterelle, you can oftentimes just see it looking straight at it. You'll see that they're more like folds or ridges, and that's their fertile surface. So you can hear me talking a lot about the underside of a mushroom. So if you're new to mushroom hunting, that's one area that you really want to focus on, on the mushroom. Like the anatomical structures underneath the cap, that's a key feature of a mushroom. And oftentimes it'll help you positively identify a mushroom when not many other features can. And many field guides, they break down mushrooms based on their fertile structures underneath. So chanterelles have these ridges or folds. Sometimes they look like gills. And, you know, I mean, they they serve the purpose of gills. And when I say gills, what I mentioned before is they're these plate-like structures that contain the spore-bearing structures. That's where the spores are dispersed. So chanterelles are next, and then black trumpets, and then a whole variety of bolete mushrooms, and then you're into the autumn season with maitake, and then winter with enoki and oysters, and then you're back to morel season, and it just goes by so quickly. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah, the chanterelles I've definitely heard about, and I think I was in Washington State when I was young. Gosh, that was a long time ago, but on a baseball tournament and uh the billet house that I that I was with, they were said, Well we're gonna go hunt chanterelles and I was like, What are, what are those? And we found you know, they went on when they were fantastic. And so that's the only other mushroom I've actually ever hunted for. But yeah, I love those. And uh so the gills you're talking about, is is that like a I mean I understand it's underneath the cap, so is that something that can tell you this is good mushroom, this is a bad mushroom, or poisonous, or how does that work? Is that an indicator? So as far as I know, there's no, like, one indicator that 
if a mushroom has it, that means it's toxic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to know, well, if it's this color, is it toxic? Or if it grows on this, is it toxic? Or if it has this anatomical feature, is it toxic? And the answer is always, well, it depends. Like, you've got to apply maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 different filters. <laughs> Go through all of those, and then you can determine if a mushroom is edible or toxic. I mean, you really have to know each species one at a time in order to determine if it's edible or not. And just because a mushroom is edible doesn't mean it's edible for everybody. There are some people who get violently ill eating morel mushrooms. People who get violently ill eating chicken of the woods. There are people who could eat morel mushrooms for decades, and then one year their body just says, no more, can't do it anymore, and they can't ever again. So it's really interesting. I mean, it's not that much different from regular foods. You know, when I was growing up, I could eat anything, like pizzas and hoagies and french fries and cakes and ice cream and all this stuff. I can't do that stuff anymore. Like, my knees start hurting if I eat that stuff. My body's like, don't do it. It's not worth it. If you want to have a healthy body and a healthy mind, just don't eat that stuff. And so it's not really that much different with mushrooms. And, um, of course, there are mushrooms that will kill you. Um, those would be mushrooms that contain amatoxins in the Amanita genus. There are some other mushrooms that have amatoxins, like the deadly gallerina. Um, but I'm talking about edible mushrooms here that, over time, maybe your body just won't agree with, with anymore. But as far as gills... The gills are, like, when you look at a button mushroom or portobello mushroom or shiitake mushroom, you look underneath the cap and you see, like, that fan spread of these, like, plate-like structures that are arranged beautifully all the way around the cap. So those are gills. And some edible mushrooms have gills. Some poisonous mushrooms have gills. Some benign mushrooms have gills. Some medicinal mushrooms have gills. So it really doesn't tell you if a mushroom is edible or not. But there are a few, like, general rules when it comes to mushroom foraging and what certain structures can tell you about a mushroom. For example, if a mushroom has pores on the underside and it's like a spongy cap kind of mushroom, we call those bolete mushrooms. A lot of people say that boletes are among the safest groups of mushrooms to harvest for the table. And one common and very popular bolete mushroom would be the porcini mushroom. Many people have heard about porcinis. They're real popular. They're expensive if you ever get them at a grocery store or on the menu at a restaurant. So that would be a classic example of a bolete-like mushroom. Now, there are poisonous bolete mushrooms. I'm not saying that every single one is edible. But generally, as a group, they're safer than a lot of the gilled mushrooms. And the same is true for polypore mushrooms, like that chicken of the woods that I told you about. Mushrooms that have pores on the underside, generally, they are safer than the ones with gills on the underside. But I never like to put those hard, fast rules out there because there are exceptions to everything. And the majority of polypores are just inedible. I mean, you would break your teeth just trying to chew some of these things because they're hard as a rock. It's like growing out of the side of a tree. Um, so with the gilled mushrooms, generally speaking, you got to be a little more discerning because some of the deadliest mushrooms, like the amanitas that I talked about or the gallerina mushrooms or some mushrooms in a different genus known as lepiota, those ones have gills. Uh, but there are a lot of edible mushrooms that have gills as well. So... Moral of the story, just learn each mushroom one at a time. Yeah, and take it slow and, and you know, seek out the experts like yourself. And, uh, yeah, I suppose it's true. I mean, there's people, you know, that can't have peanuts, for I guess, for example. So, yeah, just kind of approach it that way. It kind of make, helps it make sense when you describe that. It helps it, all of it kind of make a little more sense to me. So, yeah. What are the I, – I always think of the – I don't even know what they are, but they're. I guess it would be kind of like a button-shaped mushroom, and it's red. 
and they got these white dots on it. I mean, to me, it just looks dangerous as all giddy up. What are those? Do you know what I'm talking about? So the mushroom with the red and white cap, like the patches? Yeah, they're like a... That's like, like associated with Christmas and like fairy tales and stuff like that? Yeah, with, yeah, exactly. Like a gnome should be sitting on it or something. And, yeah, you know, so, that's a long like, Yeah, I mean, that's, pro- that's one of the most recognizable mushrooms. Just by sight. I mean, people might not know the name of it, but you pick up a Christmas card, you see it. Um, you see fairies or gnomes next to mushrooms. It's usually that mushroom right there. You play a game of Mario, that's the mushroom that it looks like. Uh, so that belongs to that genus that I just mentioned, with, which is Amanita. But it's not, it doesn't contain the amatoxins. Uh, it contains other compounds that have psychoactive properties. It doesn't grow where I live. I don't have the red and white variety um, here in the United States. I'm not sure of its exact range, but I, I'm pretty sure it grows out in the Rocky Mountain region, uh, so out west, closer to where you are. Uh, but it grows in other parts of the world. We have the yellow variety of Amanita muscaria. So it looks almost identical, but it's got the uh, yellow cap rather than the red cap. But it's an absolutely gorgeous mushroom. Unfortunately, I've only ever seen it Christmas cards or uh, online, but never in person. Right on. Okay. Well, I'm kind of interested. I uh, You kind of mentioned, uh, or I saw on your website too, about some of the medicinal components. Are mushrooms can be medicinal? Some people think so, yes. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a well studied topic. It is, despite what many people say. People say there's got to be more research on it before you can make claims. Anything that's herbal, anything that's plant derived, anything that's fungal derived, anything that's tree derived, doesn't matter what it is. The skeptics will always say there's got to be more research. And so I don't know what that magic number is. Do you need 100 studies? Do you need 150? Do you need 200? Like how many do you need? Uh, because there are a lot on mushrooms in the medicinal potential. And so mushrooms have been used for a long time for medicinal purposes. And some of the more popular ones are the ones that are being marketed today in supplement form or in tincture form. And so when we look at some of these compounds, we see that a lot of them are water-soluble, a lot of them are not water-soluble. So the ones that are water-soluble, you can extract through hot water. So people make what are known as decoctions, which are essentially teas by another name. You're basically simmering or getting water up to a high temperature and putting these fungal bodies in the water and extracting out these compounds, which research shows has effects on the immune system, helps to regulate the immune system. So these compounds are what are known as immunomodulators. So what the heck is an immunomodulator? Well, basically, it's something that modulates the immune system in an interesting way. And so a lot of things are immunostimulants herbally, like echinacea. People take echinacea when they're getting sick because it helps to boost the immune system. That's fine, but what if you already have an overactive immune system? Like what if you're dealing with an autoimmune condition where your immune system is just too high, it's too hot, it's on overdrive? You probably don't want to stimulate it or not stimulate it for that long. So you would want something to almost suppress the immune system or not turn it on overdrive. That's where immunomodulators come in. Immunomodulators, and this is documented. It's not like I'm just making this stuff up. It can stimulate the immune system, but it can reduce the inflammation associated with an overactive immune system. So it kind of puts like a lid on it or like a ceiling on it. So it doesn't turn it up too much. And not many things in nature have these immunomodulating compounds. Some plants do, but we see that it's real common in the fungal kingdom. 
And so some of the mushrooms that are being advertised for this and studied for it as well would be turkey tail. That's one of the most well-studied medicinal mushrooms. Uh, another one is the reishi or the reishi mushroom in the Ganoderma genus. Shiitake mushroom as well. Even the common button mushroom has these properties. Um, the chaga fungus is another mushroom that's being studied, although it doesn't really have any human trials conducted to date, but I'm sure that'll change pretty shortly. Uh, cordyceps is another one. Again, if you go to a health food store and you just look at the immune system section and you'll find the mushrooms that are spread out on a shelf, you'll see all those mushrooms and many more. That's generally what people take them for. And there's other actions as well, like antiviral properties, antibacterial properties, uh, energizing properties in the case of cordyceps and a few others as well. But it's really interesting. You know, um, they've been used for a long time, and it's nice to see that modern research is backing up a lot of the claims. Wow, that's fantastic. And, yeah, a lot of information there. So, yeah, I certainly need to need to get in touch with you and take some of your courses for sure. One other or two other mushroom uh, questions I've got for you. I've been hearing a little bit about just on my own homework a little bit with chaga. And I guess it grows on birch trees. And I've heard good things about it. What do you know about chaga? Or have you come across it? Yeah, so chaga is a fun, fun fungus to find. Um, so a lot of people will say, well, it's not a mushroom. Because a mushroom by definition, is the sporulating fruiting body of a fungus. And chaga is a sterile body of the fungus. So it doesn't have the ability to produce spores, but it's kind of like this conch that comes out out of the tree. And so it's technically a sclerotium, S-C-L-E-R-O-T-I-U-M. I think I spelled that right, sclerotium, uh, which is just a hardened mass of mycelium. And mycelium is this vegetative network of fungi that it's involved in nutrient acquisition and transport. And so you'll see this, it looks like a tumorous mass or like some cancerous growth coming up out of a birch tree. You'll find it at the bottom of a tree. You'll find it 40 feet up in the air. And as you said, it typically does grow on birch trees. It grows on some other trees as well, including those in the birch family. So I've heard it grows on alder trees and alders or alder shrubs, I should say, but there's some alder trees as well. Uh, but alder trees are in the birch family. Uh, hop hornbeam and hornbeam, those are in the birch family as well, so you might see it on that. Elm is not in the birch family, but I believe chog has been reported on that as well. And so it grows as a perennial, so you can find it all year round, and it's got a slow life cycle. So it takes 10, 15, 20, 25 years in order to get you know, 12 inches, 24 inches, 36 inches away from the tree. Maybe not 36, that's kind of big. But people have found some huge conks before of chaga. And a lot of people make teas out of it, including myself on occasion. I typically take the tincture more than I ingest the tea. And there's research on chaga, basically what I said with the other fungi. They're beta-glucans, which are these polysaccharides that have immunomodulating properties. And as I mentioned before, a lot of people like to hate on chaga because there's not any human trials that have been conducted on chaga and its medicinal properties, unlike shiitake or unlike turkey tail or unlike the maitake mushroom. But it doesn't mean that it's ineffective. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of studies, in vitro, in vivo studies, showing the efficacy of chaga and some of its anti-cancer properties, specifically against melanoma. Uh, but it's a delicious tasting beverage if nothing else. I mean, if you're just looking to get like a fungus into your body and you know that there might be some compounds in there, even if it's just the vitamins and minerals, 
You can make a decoction by simmering some chaga in hot water for an hour, two hours, four hours, overnight, a whole week in a crock pot, and it makes this incredibly dark, rich beverage that tastes, in my opinion, kind of like a mild black tea. So it's kind of tannic, but not really. But it doesn't taste like a mushroom at all. Like, if you would simmer a button mushroom in water, you would basically be drinking, like, mushroom soup, like mushroom broth, because it tastes so mushroomy. The same thing with a lot of other mushrooms. But chaga is just different. And I think it's because the actual chaga sclerotium isn't entirely fungal. It's also part birch tree. So, like, we don't know where the birch tree ends and the chaga fungus actually begins. It's all kind of mixed in there. So you're almost getting an extraction out of the birch tree as well. And birch has medicinal properties, and it's no surprise that chaga concentrates a lot of those properties into its fungal body. Wow, that, that certainly answers some questions. That's, that, I was kind of wondering about that. Yeah, like you, you explained it well. Where does it start and the birch tree end? So if I come across this and I said, tell myself, hey, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and harvest that, am I doing harm to the birch tree? Do you know? It depends how you would harvest it. So chaga is incredibly hard. Like, it's like rock solid. And sometimes you can knock it off with your hands. Like, it's very long. You could just either kick it off or just break it off with your hands. If you use an axe, which a lot of people use, or some kind of tool with a sharp edge, and you hack into the tree, of course you could be harming the tree. But if you just aim your strike at the chaga fungal body, you're not going to do any damage to the tree. But some people do hack into the tree to, like, get the whole thing out, and I don't recommend that. It looks unsightly. It's probably not good for the birch tree, uh, and there's no real good reason to do such a thing. Chaga might be able to grow back. I've seen it grow back after harvesting it, but I don't harvest into the tree. I leave a lot of it behind, actually, and so I see it still growing after I harvest that portion. Uh, but birches are pioneer species, so they're not very long-lived trees anyway. They come in when land has been cleared or there's a gap in the canopy. They take advantage of the, the sunlight and the open forest floor, and they don't live that long. Now, of course, some specimens can live for a couple hundred years, but generally speaking, they do their work very early. They do it very quickly as well. And at least where I live, the birches are fine. And so even if you would happen to injure the birch tree and it would encounter some other kind of infection, I think the birch genus would be fine, at least here in Pennsylvania. I can't speak for everywhere in the world. I'm sure there are some rare birches where you probably wouldn't do any unnecessary harm to it, but at least here, it's fine to do such a thing. Sure. Well, that kind of leads me into, I guess, another question I have. You know, we, so we're out mushroom hunting, and, you know, we know what we're looking for, and, wow, we come across a nice spot where we're going to harvest some mushrooms. I mean, there has to be some etiquette advice that you can give us because i'm you know if we're just taking all these and and not leaving something behind i mean how are things going to reproduce and go forward so how would you describe to someone or how do you describe to someone you know when it comes time to that etiquette how do you how do you approach that treat it like it's the most special gift you've ever received in your life no matter what it is you're going to harvest something just act like it's an incredible gift. And that's what I do when I go out. I know that these things aren't necessarily put there for me. They're not just gifts for humans. They're gifts to the world. They're gifts to everything that's out there in that particular ecosystem. But you got to treat it like that, or else you're going to treat it like a shopping spree. 
because that's how we're trained today, at least in America, yeah. to accumulate as much as we possibly can because if you don't get it, somebody else will. And there is that mindset in the foraging community. A lot of people don't want to admit to it. A lot of people don't see it. But just look at their posts online, and you see it. It's all over, you know, how much they harvest, how much more they harvest, or how much they can't wait to harvest. And yet you see nothing or hear nothing about how grateful they are, how thankful they are, how much they gave back, what they're doing to improve that land, how they're going to teach other people to do such a thing. So it's very, very one-sided. Uh, but when you look at it like, it like it's a gift and not necessarily just a gift for you, but a gift to that particular ecosystem, I think it changes things at least just a little bit. And so I'm with you. I mean, I don't harvest everything that I see no matter what it is because if somebody had, I don't know, an apple tree, and I use this example a lot, so if somebody heard this, then forgive me, but I'll say it again to the people who haven't heard it. But if somebody has an apple tree next door and it's full of apples, you wouldn't go over there and pick every apple without at least asking for permission, right? Or giving something in return. Or at least saying thank you. Like, why would you not say thank you for such a thing? It would just be weird. It would just be awkward. People would look at you strange if they knew that you did that without doing at least one of those things. And so how is it any different when you go out and you pick a mushroom and then you bring it into your house and then you put that thing into your body without even a muttering of thank you or I'm grateful or here's how I will be giving back. And so I encourage people to do that. Um, There's little things that people can do. I mean, just taking up trash, leaving a couple mushrooms behind, uh, teaching other people how to forage sustainably, pulling out some of the invasive plants that you see along the way. Uh, there are seemingly bigger things that you can do, but they're not that big. I mean, you can donate money to people who are taking care of that particular property, whether it's a, a nature center, or an environmental center, or a land trust, or you could just donate money or time to land trusts in your area as well to make sure that those organisms are there for future generations. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think it's great advice. It's a good way to really look at it. I mean, there is no trophy at the end of the season, you know, for the guy that collected more than someone else, you know, just take what is offered, but at the same time, be gracious. And yeah, like you said, thankful and, and, and leave, leave things behind, leave them where they need to be. There's, there's no trophy, right? So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Good way to put it. I like your approach. And I think a lot of people will like that approach. And I do the same thing, even just with fly fishing. I mean, I do love to have, you know, a trout on the grill, but, you know, if I'm catching 10 trout, I might keep one, maybe two. And, yeah, certainly releasing everything else back into the wild. So, yeah, all good advice. Definitely got to be strong stewards of, of our of our land every single day. And, it's you know, it's just not a passing notion. It's a continued um, thing that we got to pay attention to. So I got one more mushroom question for you. And this one, okay. my, my, and then we can move on to a couple other little fun things. Uh, my mother was, is, was big into some holistic medicines and this kind of that, that sort of thing. And I remember years ago, she came across and she said, all right, I found the best thing in the world. And it's going to make me live to 200 years old. And she called it, I don't, I'm sure there's a different name for it, but she called it the Manchurian mushroom. And she had all these instructions to make tea out of it. And it was this crazy, she had it in this big jar. And it was like big flat mushroom. I mean, it was big as a giant pancake. And it had all these really thin layers that would grow inside this jar of this water. She was making this tea. And she would have to peel off a layer. And I thought, what is my crazy mother up to? But 
she she was persistent with it. Have you come across this phenomenon, this Manchurian mushroom? Is that kombucha? Gosh, I wouldn't know to be honest with you. And are you familiar with kombucha? I'm not. Go ahead and give it. Okay, a it might be kombucha. Okay, it might be kombucha, which is they call it a scoby, which is a symbiotic colony of yeast and bacteria. So scoby. I think that's what it is. That's what it sounds like. What you just described. Okay. And this thing, beca- I mean, this thing has been around for a long time. People have been using it, not necessarily in the United States for a long time, but elsewhere. But it seems to have gotten real popular in the past couple decades. I mean, I remember seeing the first kombucha drink on the market in maybe 2006 or seven, and I know it was around longer than that in the United States. But when I wasn't even into health foods and I saw this thing, I mean, that's when you know, like, it hit mainstream when it started appearing in gas stations. But kombucha is pretty popular today. A lot of health food stores sell it. But even, like I said, you might even find some in gas stations. And it's a, like I said, it's a scoby or symbiotic colony of yeast and bacteria that ferment uh, the sugar in a tea beverage. And I think it's traditionally black tea or green tea. Uh, I've never made it personally, but I know a lot of people who have made it. And it kind of tastes like a vinegary-like drink. Right. And there's a lot of health claims made for kombucha. And it's funny because the uh, kombucha that hit mainstream like a decade or 15 years ago had all these health claims on it. And I guess the FDA cracked down on it. And so they don't say that stuff anymore. But I remember the days when it said all this stuff about your hair, your skin, your nails, your longevity, your heart, your joints, your bones. And I'll bet there's some things to it. You know, like I'm not saying that kombucha wouldn't do those things. Um, I know a lot of days that I, I know today that a lot of the kombucha products actually have a lot of sugar in them, so that's something that people have to watch out for if you can't tolerate sugar very well. But I'm sure that the classic and traditional kombucha probably had less sugar in it. Okay. Yeah, I just remember this crazy jar she had, and she would have that tea every morning, and, well, she called it tea. I don't really know what was in there, but but I said, okay, yeah, I remember having a sip and thought, okay. Well, she's starting to lose her mind here a little bit, but let's go for the ride anyway. (laughs) If it's not kombucha, then forget everything that I just said. But it sounds like it might be kombucha. Yeah, it's... (laughs) Or kombuki, as my mom likes to call it. Okay, okay. All right, (laughs) let's do our homework. We'll figure it out. I just wanted to bring that up as a a fun note. I just remember being a kid. She always just called it the Manchurian mushroom, so that's why I brought it up that way. Well, good. That's a lot about mushrooms. That's fantastic, and it's certainly a good start. And again, you got to go to learnyourland.com and and uh, connect with Adam, and he can tell you more. So, give us a little bit of rundown on some other fun things out there that we might be able to forage and and have, and maybe you know put in our in our dinner when we're out backpacking. I always think of wild garlic. I'm always on the hunt for wild garlic. So, give us a little, little other fun ideas that we can look for and what we might be able to pay attention to. So I guess it just really depends where you live because my ecosystem is different than your ecosystem and my ecosystem is different than an ecosystem that's only 200 miles south of me because it just varies by gradations, like a little farther west or a little farther north or east or west. Things are a little different. Um, But, of course, in my general region, things are relatively the same, but there are some nuances that differentiate it. Uh, So, I mean, the things that I would recommend probably – aren't the same things that grow where you live. Like right now I'm getting really excited about black locust flowers. Black locust is this tree that, it's such an interesting tree. Uh, It's in the legume or the pea family. Are you familiar with black locust? Uh, No. 
shoot, keep going. Yeah, tell us all about <laughs> it. Yeah, so it's this member of the legume of the pea family. So it's related to peas and soy and alfalfa and peanuts. Um, so it has compound leaves. It's got many leaflets. It's got leguminous pods, and it's got pea-like flowers. And this tree used to have such a limited range. It was like the central Appalachians and like the Ozarks. And that was it at the time of European settlement, I should say. And now it's found in pretty much every single state. And it's found all around the world because it's a, what they call an invasive species. And it happened in such a short amount of time. Uh, it's not that invasive where I live, but I know it could be considered invasive elsewhere. But it's a fantastic tree that produces these delicious flowers that are edible. And they smell so good. It's one of the best smelling substances in nature. It smells like jasmine or like vanilla. And it's only available for like a week and a half out of the year. That's it. Wow. It's so short, like in a particular area. So you would have to just keep traveling to keep like hitting those flowers. But they're flowering right now in western Pennsylvania. And it's interesting with flowers because flowers like really aren't in the American cuisine. Like we just don't know what to do with flowers. And I'm there. Like I don't, I don't really know what to do with flowers except right. shake off the insects and just stuff my face with them. And that's what I do. Um, I've never really found a good way to preserve them. I mean, you could put them in the fridge and they'll last a little bit. So I just tend to eat them on the spot. Uh, of course, they don't provide a lot of calories, so it's not something that you could really live off of. But if you're looking for this micronutrient, you're just looking to get some black locust into your body, well, you can't eat the bark of the tree. Like, the wood is just too hard. Eat the flowers. It's much safer. It's much tastier as well. So that's something that I'm excited about. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that tree actually grows in Montana just because of its spread. I mean, it's, I think it's found in maybe 48 out of the 50 states in the United States. So you might, might want to check and see if it grows in Montana. Yeah, I will, and especially if it smells like jasmine. I love jasmine. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that definitely I can do some homework on here. I wrote it down, so I'll definitely be doing that. You know, one of my favorite things Montana's pretty famous for, too, is huckleberries. Yeah. I was just going to say berries. Berries is going to be my next thing. But, yeah, huckleberries are great. Yeah, I love huckleberries. And, oh, my gosh, I mean, I get them into a milkshake. I just I just sit there all day long eating that. But, yeah, I've come across humongous huckleberry patches, raspberries, some wild strawberries, blueberries. and the, But, yeah, huckleberries I'm just I'm real fond of and I can get in trouble. And, gosh, I've been pretty far back in the backcountry of the Zorka Beartooth Wilderness, primarily in south-central Montana. And I came across Rimrock Lake, I remember. It's probably about eight miles back and just this huge, it was on this hillside uh, of wild raspberry. I mean, as far as you could see, I mean, just just beautiful. And I just sat down and and uh, was just having a few and just kind of looking at the lake and, you know, deciding what my next move was going to be. And all of a sudden I look up and this black bear sticks his head up out of this patch. And he was probably about 50 yards away. And, oh, my Lord, I about did a backflip and ran down the hill. But, you know, it's important for the animals to be able to eat these things, too. And uh, black bear certainly gave me a startle. But he didn't bother me. He had lots of food. And I just kind of meandered my way out of there. But, yeah, berries. What kind of berries do I watch out for, though? That you don't want to eat. Is that your question? Right. Yeah. Which ones do I not want to pick and eat? Poison ivy. <laughs> ah, I was going to ask you that one, too, on your website. I was seeing that. So tell us about poison ivy, then. Yeah, I mean, well, technically, they're not berries. Uh, if you're a botanist, you would say, well, he's wrong because poison ivy doesn't produce berries. They're technically droops, D-R-U-P-E, uh, which is kind of like a cherry. 
a cherry is a droop. So it's got like a fleshy exterior, then it's got like a pit or the seed inside. But they look like berries, so you can call them a berry. But I wouldn't eat them. I don't know anybody who's ever eaten a poison ivy berry. Uh, if you have, let me know and tell me about your experience. <laughs> Maybe I'll change my recommendation. But as far as I know, it's toxic, just like every other part of the plant. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that's one that you wouldn't want to eat. Uh, fortunately, people don't really ever see poison ivy fruits. They're not really paying attention to it. They kind of grow like in the leaves, like underneath them, so they're kind of covered up. And for most of the year, they're green, like throughout the summer and the early autumn months, but they turn white. And then they persist throughout the winter as white fruits. So you'll see them during the winter months, but they don't look edible at all during the winter because they're all shriveled and dried. They're kind of just falling apart at that point. But anything in that, like, poison ivy, poison sumac group of plants or poison oak, they all produce similar fruits. I definitely wouldn't eat those ones. Uh, But, I mean, a lot of berries are edible and what's great about berries is that they're good fruits or at least it's good plants for beginner foragers because a lot of the wild berries look exactly the same as the ones you see in cultivation and the ones that are sold in grocery stores and some of them aren't even that that far along the domestication process like if you find cranberries in a grocery store it's the same species as the wild cranberry same exact one it's not different as far as the species um, blueberries look similar, but of course the cultivated ones are bigger and they're juicier, but they look similar. I mean, wild raspberries, they look similar to the cultivated raspberries. So these things are very easy for beginner foragers, and they're some of the most nutritious foods on the planet. Uh, they don't contain very much sugar. They contain fiber, and they're just loaded with antioxidants. And what's fascinating about berries is that they appear at a time when the body probably requires the most antioxidants, which is the summer months and when the sun is beating down on you. And so a lot of us are used to applying topical sunscreen, and I think that is a good idea so long as, a, as it's a, so long as it's a non-toxic sunscreen. But you can also provide an internal sunscreen as well, and that's through eating antioxidant-rich foods like berries. And a lot of studies show that berries are among the highest antioxidant foods on the planet, and they're just so plentiful as well. And you don't really have to feel that bad about foraging a lot of them because they're the fruits of the plant. You're not digging up the plant. Uh, you're not really hurting the plant. I know that there are other animals that require it, and so you got to respect that as well. Uh, but as far as, like, the damage to the ecosystem, it's not that high up there. Right, right, right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you're not destroying the roots or the actual, you know, shrub part that's holding the berry, and the berry's going to fall off anyway at some point. I'd and, uh, you know, hit the ground and be gone just to come back again next year. So, yeah, good points with the with the berries. So, yeah, gosh, we've talked a lot today. And I think we could be here for about six hours if we if we wanted to. But in the in the present or the essence of time, um, I certainly appreciate all of your your time and, and fantastic information. I'd like to have you back one day. We can drill down a little bit on something maybe a little bit more specific, too. But I think this is a good little good little intro. And uh you know, to get people kind of talking about it a little bit, and they can certainly reach out to you at learnyourland.com. Why don't you tell us how people can ta- contact you and what you what you a little bit more about what you do, and how people can benefit from some of your expertise? Yeah, so the best way to see my stuff is to go to either learnyourland.com or at the moment I'm on YouTube, so you can search Learn Your Land on YouTube. I'm not sure how long that'll last on YouTube. Not like my videos are controversial at all, but 
YouTube's kind of weird these days. You know, they're cracking down on some things. Believe it or not, two of my videos have been pulled for various reasons, and I have no idea how they came to that conclusion that these videos should not be on there. Uh, but that's just how it is these days. But at the moment, in 2021, you can see my videos on YouTube. Um, you can also sign up for an email newsletter that I sign out, send out uh, every few weeks. If you go to learnyourland.com, you can just type in your email address. And I have a, an online course related to mushroom foraging, and I'm currently working on a second one related to tree identification. Uh, and so you can hear more about that as long as you subscribe to that Learn Your Land email newsletter. Okay. And do you, you take people out in the field and spend a day or a weekend or, or things like that? I usually do. Or I should say I usually did. Then I started working more on the online stuff. And this tree course that I'm currently working on literally takes up every day of my life. <laughs> it's been taking up every day for the past year and a half, and it will continue to do that for the next year and a half until I release it. Uh, so I haven't had much time to do that lately, but probably next year, in 2022, I will resume my outdoor programming. But yeah, I've been doing that for the past maybe seven years, uh, and the last year was the first year that I took off from that just so I could focus more on the online content. Uh, so I'll continue that this year, and the next year I'll probably resume the outdoor stuff. Right on. Okay. Sounds good. Well, anything else you want to bring up before we have to head out and and uh, and promote yourself a little bit and get people headed your way? Or what? what's coming up? What's next? I mean, I don't think I have any other things to say about myself. I think I talked too much about myself today. <laughs> so no, I'll just say get outside, you know, explore, learn something. And if you feel the need to support what I do and you don't know how to do it, just donate to your local land trust because that will be more than enough. And so I just encourage people to get to know the people that steward those natural areas where they live, the trails, the parks, that kind of thing, because usually, in many cases, there are humans taking care of these properties. It's not just like a passive property, unless it's maybe private property and it's the backwoods. But a lot of the trails, you know, people maintain them. A lot of the trash is pulled. Some of the invasives are pulled as well. It takes money in order to purchase these lands. And so you could support a lot of what's being done in that field just by giving money to these organizations. And so just search for a local land trust in your area, and that's a good way to start. Thank you. Perfect. Yep, that's good advice. Everybody needs to do that, give back a little bit, and just respect the, the earth beneath your feet. And uh, But harvest a few berries here and there, maybe a morel. Well, thanks, Adam. I certainly appreciated your time today. It's been a blast. I would love to have you back one of these days, and uh, let me know. We'll know what's new, what's going on with you, and we'll be happy to tell everybody else about the new things that are coming your way. So, yeah, thank you, Adam, with LearnYourLand.com. Look him up, check out the website, get on the newsletter, and uh, let's all go out there and have a good time in the backcountry and do a little bit of wild edible foraging. Thank you, Adam. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Let's do it again. You bet. Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.